The Production Expert Podcast is brought to you with the kind support of Autoria, Source Elements, and RSPE Audio Solutions. Welcome to the Production Expert Podcast. I'm Julian Rogers, and in this week's edition, I'm joined by Steve DeMott and William Whitman, and we're going to be talking about the 80s, like the 1980s, not any other kind of 80 that you can think of. Anyway, um, there's, it's 10 years, there's more than enough to talk about, so I think we'll kind of just have a chat about stuff. We were all around the 80s in different uh, stages in our uh, in our careers, and this is going to be great because um, I, I expect that my perspective on the 80s won't be the same as uh, either of yours, and we can have a good old row, so. So uh, we should probably jump in. I mean, something that strikes me, uh, this is this is leading on from an article that Russ wrote on the site um, uh, in which he was picking out some, some characteristically 80s uh, points on production. And he was talking about the, the kind of the the obvious stuff, should I say? You know, I mean, we're kind of you know talking about things like uh, Phil Collins' gated reverb and uh, and um, DX7s, and this is extremely true. We can't talk about uh, a decade in a in a single sentence, so we should maybe start at the beginning and kind of maybe try to at least at least set off chronologically. I expect we'll, we'll fail very soon to stick to that timeline. But nineteen um, eighties, okay. We should start with you, William, because. Um, uh, we, we're bound to mention a very big record you were involved with in the 80s. Um, we, maybe we should go there straight away. I don't know. But um, at the beginning of the 80s, um, you, you were working where? What, what were you doing in kind of, you know, at the turn of that, that decade? Well, because I'm a dinosaur, uh, by, the be- <laughs> by the beginning of the 80s, I was already a freelance uh, engineer and producer, having left the major studios that I had been working at and, and was sort of tooling around going various places, although very much focused at the record plant in New York. I worked there a lot, but I was not on staff there. But I was already making records for quite a while by that point. Mm. Uh, and uh, I mean, let's go back to uh, let's go back to a, a proper studio in you know, the early eighties. Um, so, comparing techniques, you know, by the end of the decade to the beginning. Um, well, I'm, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking mix automation is probably one of one of the things um, that yeah, affected well, production. That's an interesting thing. Uh, I mean. I would say in the be- in the early eighties, um, we're mostly twenty four track on two inch tape. It's not till the middle to later eighties that it becomes common to link up to sync together multiple two inch machines for more tracks. So we're mostly sixteen or twenty four tracks, and automation. Uh, console automation had been around. I'd been using it since about nineteen seventy seven ish, but um, by the eighties it's becoming essential. It's becoming the thing that nobody is mixing without. So I guess it's more ubiquitous. Although uh, you've alluded to Cindy Lauper's big breakout record that we made in, mm. I think, 82 and came out in 83. Uh, and that is, in fact, the last album I made without automation, that that was mixed without but as I said, by about 83, 84, it's almost unheard of. Everybody says, I'm not mixing without automation. Mm. Is this because automation became uh, became more usable or was it? do you think it was driven by client expectations? Was it because it worked better? That's what I'm getting at. Uh, no, because it still didn't work very well at that point. <laughs> um, and, and I... 
a lot of people, I included, would say, well, I really like this one automation system, and so I'm not going to work on that one because I don't like that one, you know, and, mm -hmm. and or can't rely on that one. Um, I think it was a question of its of its prevalence, you know, that um, people started to put in consoles that had automation in more and more places, and clients were going to, gravitating to those places, and so it became the thing that every studio had to have. Um, Record Plant was one of the last places to put in automation, okay. oddly enough. Um, they were very old school and cared so much about, we're only going to take the thing that really sounds great and we're not going to take this week's new model just because it's this week's new model. So they were very careful about it. In fact, I, at one point, um, I don't know if this is too much of a digression, but at one point I was doing most of my records at Record Plant, but mixing at Atlantic because Atlantic had NECAM and Record Plant didn't have any automation. Um, NECAM, I should say, being Neve's very much rat on a treadmill-like automation moving fader system. Um, but uh, in any case, at one point, I was in London at air making uh, the first outfield record, and I called Record Plant and said, if you want me to mix this record there, you have to put in automation. Otherwise, I'm doing all my mixing in Atlantic. And that was the blackmail that got them to put oh, okay. uh, to put a GML system into their enormous Trident. And, and I, that was the start of them having automation. Must have been 85-ish. So, um, yeah, I think... I think it's a mix to uh, to come back to your question from mm -hmm. two uh, two hours ago. Um, I do think it was a mix of client demand and the fact that it was becoming available to more and more people being exposed to it and then subsequently asking for it. Fantastic. We should bring Steve in, really. So, Steve, um, be beginning of the eighties, what we what were you up to? <laughs> I was pretty young at the beginning yeah, of the yeah, 80s. Yeah. I'm kind of that's um, where I'm going. <laughs> and, and I've told I've told William this too, and, and he's cringing now. But I was listening to the stuff that he was releasing. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, um, excellent. Uh, especially that Outfield album was huge for me because that's when I started really. That, so that came out about 85. Yeah, yeah. And that's when uh, at that point I had a four track, and I was trying to recreate the sounds I was hearing. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, uh, you've answered my question, which I was going to say, how far into the 80s do, do you start to get your hands dirty, as it were? And Yeah, okay. yeah because I started, um, so I, I went off to Berkeley in 88, if that gives you an idea of what we're talking here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I did uh, songwriting and uh, music production and engineering there. So at the end of the 80s, I was like, you know, studying the production stuff going on. But I was trying to recreate those sounds early on, first on a four track, then I got a Tascam reel to reel eight that uh, gave me four more tracks. And you, at that point, I was like, I'll never run out of tracks. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine, that imagine quick. the luxury. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> thought it was so great going from four to eight. And luxury. Yeah. Yeah, I, I should say there might be a bit of a disconnect in the audience, assuming we have an audience, um, that the, the outfield record sold more than 2 million albums in the US, the first record, but in the UK, relatively unknown or completely unknown. So that audience might be sort of, who's the outfield? Although the outfield was in fact three kids from East London, they were 
they were only really huge in the US. This that that's an interesting point. Just because I mean, while there are still differences between, I mean, let's take the US and UK market. That's not the whole the whole of the world by any means, of course. But um, and in the, certainly in the eighties, there were very different markets. There wasn't this kind of. Uh, that wasn't as globalised as it is today. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm thinking about huge differences with um, certainly culturally. I mean, I was making a little list of kind of stuff that that I remember from the 80s in terms of music and what was around. And coming off the back of punk um, in the UK, and then there's always been this big disconnect between, same word, totally different thing, US and UK understandings of what punk is. And certainly going into what's for me one of my favourite periods of music, which you know, I mean, it's not the music of my uh, of my mid to late teens, which is kind of like supposed to be everybody's kind of golden period for yeah. the music that forms their you know sensibility. That's I'm I think I'm a bit of an outlier with that because of the age I'm. I'm, I'm 51 and kind of basically it was not a good period for, uh, musically, <laughs> to be honest. I'm sort of the uh, the, the 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 late mid eighties um, <laughs> made me look yeah. backwards, to be honest. And I sort of I was I was looking back to the seventies and the sixties because I really wasn't very keen on what was happening around me. But that whole post punk new wave kind of period was really really interesting, and that certainly looked different depending on which side of the uh, of the Atlantic you were on. And of course, yeah. there was influence of MTV, which was enormous in the states. But I mean, right. I don't know if you could even get MTV in the UK. I don't know how you'd do that. I mean. You know, until the until sometime uh, sometime halfway through the eighties, there were only three terrestrial TV channels in the UK and no cable. So you know, I mean, well, and not only that, MTV in the beginning was really uh, New York area first. Okay, I mean, I, I, so tell it didn't me, even you know, I don't it even wasn't know. even that that. Um, that widespread in the U.S. Yeah, I'm talking happens. about that British. I'm doing that British thing of talking about the U.S. as one place, and it's not. It's it's, it's, it's <clears> yeah. Well, it's I think actually the, two. It's, yeah, it is kind of two places. Oh dear. But like the so for me the early '80s, just th- thinking about um, you know, you kind of have this this hangover f- from the late '70s, right? And you get you get like the Huey Lewis and the Jay Giles um, kind of owning like that 1980 81 area and i can remember those guys on um the precursor to uh mtv which was friday night videos mm-hmm. which and i co i co-wrote the theme to by the yes way. you did mention that once in another discussion in, <laughs> in another life yeah that that's uh so my friends and i would get together and watch that and they're like these you know uh it started to shape the whole video thing uh, uh, and the video delivery of music, I think. But then you have, um, you know, MTV launches and they're playing like three videos over and over again. And you have um, the quote unquote second British invasion. And you have um, the early 80s with like Culture Club, Duran Duran. Um, who else was in there? Well, Yaz, I, I would say. Yaz, though, yeah, though not as big the, as either of those cu- two. The Cure. The Cure. So you have that going on with like MTV was showing uh, Don't Tell Me You Love Me, Night Ranger, over and over and over. That became uh, a pretty big uh, rotation video for them. And, uh, of course, you know, video killed the radio star. Mm-hmm. So you had um, kind of that whole, that was very 
new wave kind of futuristic <laughs> with the tinfoil over everything in the video. So that was the early 80s from my memory is, is that kind of thing. Um, you know, growing up in a, in a house with a, with a sister, a lot of Duran Duran. Whereas for me, I mean, I grew up, um, well, I mean, not that far from Russ, actually. I, I grew up in the Midlands, really close to Coventry, and, and the two-tone um, movement in, in the UK uh, in that kind of, you know, the, the very early 80s. I mean, I was, I was young, but I was extremely aware of it, and it was, I, I just assumed that that's what, uh, that's what music was about, was kind of like, oh, right, this is, this is great. Stuff happens really close to you, and it's really, really good, and that stopped, and then a load of sort of, I don't know, Spandau Ballet started to happen. Happened and I was a little bit confused. I was going, "Hang on, this, what, what what's this?" <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, that's, um, it's it's interesting how localized stuff was. And also, I mean, I'd talk about if we're talking about music from a consumer's point of view, something that I really, really noticed, particularly um, when I kind of circled back when I started teaching and I really engaging with young people um, uh, and and their musical musical world for want of a better word and i was it took me a little while to work out that kind of you know in the 2000s let's say um you could float freely between tribes if you like and there was nothing wrong with like with liking really disparate stuff and you had emo kids who were completely into one direction and it was fine and this confused me as as a child of the 80s where uh, if if you were if you were into uh, the new wave of British British heavy metal. You weren't allowed to like the Sisters of Mercy. This was it was against the law, uh, and certainly you weren't allowed to like pop music if you were into something that was in any way, you know, self-professed alternative. It was tribes were very very strict, um, and this is a thing that youth culture puts upon itself. But it's interesting how much more relaxed and how much more flexible things are these days. And I think this has got to be something to do with the fact of like. It's so much easier to expose yourself to all of these different. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that's what it is. I think that it's there's access now to everything as opposed to you've immersed yourself in a particular funnel or channel that you're getting all the information from, and so you're you're naturally attached to that tribe back then. I mean, it, it goes back to are you you know there was certainly some cross pollination between the UK and the US in terms of records. The big hits went both ways, but if you were living completely in one stream or another, you were only getting little bits of the other stream. And now, you know, on YouTube or on Spotify or, ugh, or whatever it yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you know, you're you're exposed to everything. That you're not you're not limited in what you can have access to. Very very yeah. different time, and and hard for somebody who who wasn't there to kind of appreciate of just the fact that you know, I mean. Uh, I mean, in the in the UK, it was it was top of the pops or or, or whistle test before it became rubbish. Um, yeah. But right. you know, it's like, uh, it, and if you wanted to see music, you had to you had to present yourself at the right time and and get it. Whereas now, of course, you can find anything you want anytime you want, and it's very difficult to appreciate that. Back in the eighties, you know, we had radio, real radio, right, terrestrial radio, mm -hmm. and that defined what you were going to hear too depending on what station you tuned into. Was it was it a top 40 station? Was it an AOR station? Did it play alternative? You know, and that's what you got. Uh, so Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, depending on where you were, uh, you, you had DJs who played music that they'd chosen themselves as opposed to radio presenters, as you get so much now, who are given a yeah. playlist and you are playing this and that's it. I yeah. mean, in the UK, say John Peel. 
um, yeah, sure. was so influential, uh, even though so much of what he played was so weird. <laughs> Although I, I had I had something I did played by John Peel once. That's my that's uh, a bit of a personal tick. But but uh, I say that. But then again, I used to listen to John Peel, and I used to I used to yeah. Um, he was more open minded than I was about music, and I, I th- like to think I'm reasonably open minded. But yeah, some of the stuff he played was positively out there. But the point is, he was allowed to. Whereas I don't think we'd ever get that. On a on broadcast these days, just because of you know um, developments in that industry, should we should we t- circle back to kind of talking about production and studios though? Just because if we're going to sure. talk about something huge that happened in the eighties, I mean, you've got a coming together of two things: affordable synths. Synths have been around for ages, but uh, but they were they were expensive and American, and then uh, in the uh, um, in the eighties they became uh, less American and a, a lot less expensive. And of course, MIDI, and that changed everything. I mean, I can remember um, f- experiencing music that was kind of you know had that rigid, sequenced. I mean, of course, that happened. That could happen in other ways as well. If we're talking about kind of I don't know, Giorgio Moroder and stuff, who's doing that uh, and pre MIDI, of course he was. But such a such tight timing um, was kind of striking, um, surprising. Uh, attention grabbing that's probably what I'm looking for um, mm-hmm. compared to all the sort of the sloppy timing of kind of you know disco and things and you know yeah I mean you could argue one could argue which is better I mean you know in the early 80s again coming back to Cindy's record we were using a Lindrum but then we were having a real drummer play along and replacing most of it or yeah but maybe keeping a Lin hi-hat while the drummer plays along to the rest of the kit uh, and we were using polyphonic synthesizers, but we did not have MIDI at that point. So everything is a little looser than, I mean, we were using arpeggiators, for example, but the arpeggiator is not deadlocked the way all MIDI instruments are deadlocked together. So, and I'm sure that's what Giorgio Moroder was doing too. He was using mm. internal arpeggiators and sequencers and things, but they're not all locked to simpty the way everything was later. And so... You know, there's a big difference between that totally gridded thing that now everybody wants to do on every channel, as opposed to this sort of slightly Mm -hmm. mechanized but still humanized thing that, you know, to me, again, I'm a dinosaur, but to me, that's a little more appealing that you've actually got Anton Figg's feel on the snare drum against the tight MIDI thing, or rather not MIDI thing, but Lindrum thing happening over the top. Yeah. So, you know, you could argue which is preferable, although I suppose there's no question who won now that everybody wants to put everything on the grid. And and you brought up one of the thing, William, that uh, was big is drum machines. Yeah. Or I mean, good, that, or, that, or good sounding drum machines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that in the 80s, that that became a necessity for a, a track. I mean, just listen to Phil Collins. Well, that's a not so good sounding drum machine. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's bad sounding. It's cool, but that's like but sort it of a beat, like a uh, drum kit. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a rhythm box thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which which makes it cool. But then I'm saying the Lindrum coming along changes everything. And it's it's funny. I'm working on something now that requires um, uh, not exactly cloning, but hinting at uh, Prince sound alike kind of records. And it's interesting how many of his records are all. Lindrums and processed Lindrums that nobody says, oh, wow, that drum machine sound on a Prince record. You don't even really associate it in some ways, or at least I don't, with right. being a drum machine because the rest of it is so kind of loose and human and funky. But but 
he used the lindrum like crazy in those early periods. Yeah, yeah. But everything else was so organic on top yeah, of it. Yeah. So, Willie, I'm I'm thinking about what you're saying about the kind of the pre MIDI nature of that first um, Cindy Lauper record. And I mean, yeah. taking taking Girls Just Want to Have Fun as a, as an example, just extremely well known. And think about those keys. And I mean, in the arrangement. Um, it had never occurred to me that there's a there's a little kind of uh, a sort of double hit off beaty little synth off to the to the. That's right not hand. a synth. That's not hmm. a synth. What is it? You're talking about the backbeat. That is a Vox Jaguar organ with a with a eighth note delay from a Publisson delay unit. Well, there I'm you are. I'm the glad controller. I asked. Okay, so, a keyboard yeah. rather. But it, uh, when yeah. you said it's not a, it's not a synth, I was thinking you can tell me that's a guitar because I want to know no. what you did to it. Okay, <laughs> good, but. It, it hadn't occurred to me that that wasn't um, that that wasn't sequenced, right? But you're and saying, it's not totally. But the not. tightness is yeah. coming from a, from a delay actually, and it's a single. Da-da. Yes, uh, but that but right, he's playing he's playing one bap bap yeah, bap yeah. on the upbeat, and the delay goes one bap 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 yeah, bap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that also requires that he play in time enough on every one of those upbeats that then the delay well, doesn't feel out of time. And that's hard to do yet. because doing yeah. anything like that for that yeah. long, because I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that that was, that was a live take as well, that's really hard because you yeah. kind of, you know, you, you zone out and you start to kind of feel like you're going to kind of, yeah, lose. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a weirder one on, on that track. Um, the snare drum, said, there is no snare drum sound because what it is is a combination of three weird things that um, Anton plays along, and mm. then we take out, I take out, the actual snare mic. So all you're hearing is a gated room mic that just goes and opens oh, and closes okay. on the backbeat, mixed with um, an 808 clap through a guitar distortion pedal but again <laughs> because that's not synced we got it roughly in time on the 808 hit start and it would run for a bar or so and then it would start to drift and we'd say okay oh, stop yeah. <laughs> rewind the tape we'd get it in sync again and I'd drop in and we really mm. we did it like almost a bar at a time to try to get it close enough so again obviously it's not really synced and then the room mic is not mm-hmm. really synced to that. I mean, it's this combination of sounds that makes that supposed so-called snare sound. But it's very, very human in a lot of ways, even though some of it is coming from machines. They're machines that aren't synced. And there's some variance through the whole thing rather than it just yeah, being a couple exactly. of samples chucked yeah. on the timeline. That's interesting. And, of course, I mean, the, the most striking aspect of that record to me, which uh, um, it's an interesting one because it's... it's uh, I think it's a feature of sort of the beginning of the 80s is that you have synthesizers and lots of people who didn't previously have synthesizers have access to synthesizers, but people are figuring out what to do with them. <laughs> and this is like pre kind of like dance music as we'd, as we'd recognise it today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you get all these synth pop bands who are, I mean, so many of them were just basically soul bands but playing soul music on synthesizers. I mean, it's what I've always thought about the Human League. Is there a soul mm-hmm. band? <laughs> or at least most of their stuff is. Um, but that... You have keyboard solos. I mean, what happened to the keyboard <laughs> solo? And what a what a peculiar keyboard solo it is on, on that record in particular, on yes. that track. Yeah, I mean, well that's one that's one where we were fishing around for it and Rob Hyman, the keyboard player, almost as a joke, in fact as a joke, went, Well, how about this? and just had a particular Juno uh, preset that that sort of ticky ticky wood drum, whatever sound. it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he just sort of 
blew this thing out as and then laughed like, well, it's not going to be that. And we all went, wow. That's, yeah, leave that in. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, well, wow. it's, it's, it's memorable, if nothing else. But it is, a, it, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, I can't think of another solo that's, 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 quite, that's quite like that, which is, you know, it's, it's a good well, thing. Well, <laughs> it's inter- interesting that solos themselves, I mean, the trend very much now is to not have any kind of a solo exactly. on records, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what it's happened to the away. solo? I mean, not even guitar solos, but I mean, exactly. if we're talking about solos in 80s records, we're probably going to be talking about saxophones, to be honest, but that's another story. Huh. Achoria has a wide selection of software effects, including three compressors, three filters, three preamps, and three delays you'll actually use. The latest release, three delays you'll actually use, includes Delay Tape 201, Delay Memory Brigade, and the unique and experimental Delay Eternity. A bundle of selected effects called the AudioFuse Creative Suite is included with all AudioFuse audio interfaces. Visit Achoria.com to find out more on the effects you'll actually use. Interest, interesting, uh, um, uh, uh, interesting insight into into a well-known record, certainly. Um, so, I mean, moving on with with MIDI. Okay, we're probably going to have to mention sampling, um, Steve. I mean, you, is this something that's, that was was on your horizon when it was a novelty, when it was unavailable? Did you look at samples and go, wow, got to get hold of one of those? Or were you just kind of going, no, no, I'm, oh, I'm yeah, a guitar I was guy, always you know? kind of looking ahead at what, what tech was happening. Um, I'm kind of naturally a techie guy anyway. Um, so before MIDI was even out, I knew it was coming and, uh, you know, was talking about it. And then it came out and jumped on it and... Uh, samplers, same thing. I knew it was coming. Uh, uh, it's, um, I was, I never shied away from the tech as much as I was a, you know, plug in and play guitar player in Mm. the eighties. I, you know, I, I, I may have even possibly have been a shredder. Who knows? (laughs) We might Um, have to talk about those in a bit, but okay. Um, yeah, I was more of a greater, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, and, and we'll talk about this too, but, you know, there was that, that moment in 1984, the year and the album, where a synth made it into, into a Van Halen album and everyone was like, wait a minute, can you do that? Is that allowed? Oh, mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Oh, okay. You know, that, that I mean, those, uh, that was separation of church and state, right? You had synths and you had the, the hard rock, metal, and... You know, Nary shall the two ever cross paths, but Eddie See, but did it. I, it's interesting. I I think from the inside the studio, the music maker side of that, I don't think there was that uh, separation of church and state. I think that it was very much an 80s mindset that we have all this new stuff coming, new synthesizers and and new digital reverbs and new even new instruments you know all these guitar companies that were it wasn't just Fender and Gibson and Rickenbacker anymore there were all these choices and the Floyd Rose comes out and all that stuff it's like I think there was a real atmosphere of hey there's a new thing let's find a way to put it on our record how do we use this new thing how do I use this new thing differently than somebody else is using it and we're all Mm. sort of trying to be the cool new kid you're right it was a future facing decade I I agree with you it that's really a good was. way to put the good way to put it exactly that that I don't think there was a fear of I'm oh my god I can't put a synthesizer on my guitar driven record it was the opposite it was how do I make a cool thing on this record I mean even you can think of the police starting to introduce synthesizers on their record 
Robert. I mean, that's yeah. to me even more jarring than Van Halen. But but they didn't think, oh my God, I can't do that. They were like, yeah, let's find a way to do this. Well, if we want a record that that properly kind of mixed things up and and crossed streams, as it were, it's, it's got to be uh, um, Walk This Way, uh, Run, Run DMC and Aerosmith. I mean, that led to sure. something that was that was very... I mean, if you think about all of the stuff that came from that with the crossover of, of hip-hop and, and, and rock music, and, uh, I mean... Yeah. Uh, that's a great record, but I, I don't know. Would we have had I don't know Rage Against the Machine without Run DMC? I'm 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 not sure we would. That's right. That's probably right. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's uh, so, and this is where we get into a very big difference between earlier '80s and later '80s, especially yeah. in the U.S. because that stuff wasn't happening until later. Mm, I mean, yeah. that's, I don't know, '86. Oh, yeah, I and that, that would be the second half. I would have thought later, but I have DMC, a very poor I mean, sense but, of uh, but yeah, yeah I, I know, I know. Is it that? Is it as early as that? I thought it was even later. I, I'm not going to look it up, but yeah, I'm t- that's just a Google <laughs> away. But something yeah. like that, anyway. But um, because uh, even up until I want to say up until '85, um, it was really uh, was just group at all as urban music hadn't really broken through on MTV, despite things like Blondie's Rapture and things like that, it hadn't really become mainstream until Aerosmith did that. Okay, okay yeah, I, this is familiar. I mean, this is, as somebody in, in the in the UK, this it wasn't as significant as that, but I associate it with kind of, there was like Yo! MTV raps and all of that. That was a 90s thing, was it? But yeah. So when it started, it was very kind of... It was a big, it was very controversial that a lot of people were complaining that, MTV was pretty much all white all the time. I mean that that there yeah. was it was a real thing. That well, there's it was that famous very interview difficult. with Bowie yeah. about that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean that it was no small thing. I mean, and I think the Run DMC record is one of the sort of breakthrough mm. places where where they found a door in that they could feel comfortable with uh, MTV. I mean, but but it was kind of shameful for a while how how narrow cast they were in that respect. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, you you alluded, Steve. You alluded to shredding. I mean, this is something that I very much associate with uh, certainly the second half of the eighties. But um, I mean, an interesting thing occurred to me, which is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Eddie Van Halen, um, the first Van Halen record would have been seventy nine. It was like it, well, they were just in the seventies, right. weren't they? Yeah, seventy eight or seventy nine. Not quite the eighties. There's ten years between Eddie Van Halen and uh, and Jimi Hendrix. And that's yeah. an interesting thought. I mean, that's that's an awful lot of that's a, that's a big musical journey, if you like. And if you think about, I've I've said to lots of young guitarists to understand the significance of Jimi Hendrix, you have to look at what guitar was like before Jimi Hendrix. And in the right. same way, I think to understand the significance of Eddie Van Halen, you have to look at what guitar was like before Eddie Van Halen. I mean, it's not by accident that uh, when Marty McFly, uh, '80s reference, um, yeah. uh, wants to freak out a young George McFly with uh, sci-fi noises, he uses his Walkman and plays a bit of a, a bit of Van Halen down the headphones. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it was like something from another planet. Um, yeah. Well, they did. You got to also think about the technology advances. You didn't have high gain amps for for Hendrix to play through. You know, when you when you get to those boutique high gains, like like Bookie was the first to do that. They were souping up those Princetons, and by the eighties, that was that was an iconic eighties sound. The the Boogie Mark II. 
Okay, yeah. You know, and that changed the way you could play guitar. Because I mean, for those that are not guitar players, when you can hit a note, flip around, face your amp, and have that note feedback on tone forever, it changes the way you can play guitar and what you can do with it. It's it, it's this moment of you're like, huh, huh. I mean, as a guitar player, I just, you know, I do that with my band and we, we just smile because I'm just, I'll hold that note for way too long yeah, while it just yeah, yeah. rings forever. Only keyboard, you know, synth players could do that. Oh, you could do that on an organ, but you couldn't do that on a guitar. You hit the note, it had a decay. Yeah. So it changed what you could do. And then you've got, you know, this, this evil genius Floyd Rose figuring out how to make the the whammy bar work and yeah. you add those two together and you have um you know a very different approach to what can be done on that instrument it's, it's almost a different instrument by the time you hit the 80s when you have the high gain amps and the floyd rose mm. whether you like it or not it was of itself yeah yeah well it, it's interesting that i have to stop saying it's interesting because it's probably not um but <laughs> but but you had that same sort of arms race in the instrument maker sphere that you did in the studio equipment sphere. That that it's like higher gain pickups and yep. the Floyd Rose and and uh, locking trems and uh, head, headless, and, yeah. headless bases and active pickups and, and, and all this stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, I mean, still my favorite bass guitar is the Status Graphite headless one piece. I mean, it's amazing stuff. But but the thing is that. Um, in a way, again, there was this arms race of how to make better, bigger, louder, different, and how to use that mm. to make records that are different and bigger and better and louder. I mean, there was a sort of every snare drum had to be bigger than the previous guy's snare drum for a while. <laughs> um, in, a, in a weird way, we don't have that anymore. That, um, And again, not to sound like the get off my lawn guy, but I don't see that level of automation, except you could perhaps make the argument in plugins. But um, I don't. I don't see it in musical instrument design or in, really studio, or in studio equipment yeah. design. Yeah. It's it's so easy. It's so available. I mean, we talked about Cindy's first record, or the girls just want to have, sna have fun snare drum. Now people would say, well, what's the preset on the digital reverb or what's the preset yeah. on yeah. the drum machine that gets that sound? But that's not what it was. And because I didn't have that, it forced us to come up with creative ways to do something different. Now it's a question of I'll page through the presets and which is the one I pick. But right. what, I'd, what I'd suggest, I mean, for certain styles of music, because there is, you know, it's it's so diverse now that I don't think it's possible to make any any statement that holds up to scrutiny. But uh, but certainly for, for guitar music, but also in, in, in the studio and it, basically there's a reference, uh, not reference, there's a reverence for the old and for the vintage and for the classic that to some extent is that kind of putting us into a state of sort of atrophy of like i mean uh, it's possible uh, as as much be. as as much as i love and i do think you know there's something about a 1959 les paul aside from its outrageous value there's something about them that is great and when you record one or play one you go wow i get it but on the other hand i think you're right that 
it is to some degree stifling innovation that rather than coming up with the next iteration of what a guitar could be, the next Floyd Rose mm. idea, instead where how can I make a copy of a Stratocaster or a copy of a Les Paul for mm. my company that people will buy instead of that one? Yeah. And it's just everybody chasing the same platonic ideal. So, yeah, well, think think about just, I mean... Think about the alternate guitar companies in the 80s that were doing what Fender wouldn't do, yeah. right? They were making the super strats, but they, you know, whether it was so Ibanez, and your, Jackson, yeah, Charvel, Yeah, well, we used, we used a lot of, uh, on, on multiple records that I did with different people, we used a lot of custom-made Schecters that, that were basically super Telecasters put together from these custom Schecter parts that were so much better than anything Fender was making yeah. in that time. Yeah, I mean, people were not afraid to... to uh, do something that wasn't mainstream, and uh, it caught on. I mean, you, you. I mean, I still, I still have my my '87 um, Ibanez RG560, which is my shredder guitar, and that that thing, it's the fastest neck you'll ever play. Interestingly, for um, uh, I, I own. I, I still own two of the three bass guitars I've ever owned um, by my my first um, precision I sold, and I've regretted it ever since because, you know, mm -hmm. but um, even though it weighed as much as a small car, but I don't know. Um, but uh, <laughs> but in the in the 80s, of course, it was like that was a boring precision and uh, and I was young and foolish. And uh, I, I've got an uh, Aria Pro 2, you know, um, think that's kind of like the yeah. John Taylor bass. Basically, right. I have right. one of those. I, I, it's it's a nice bass. I don't play it anymore, and uh, hmm. and I've got kind of a nice uh, Lakeland um, jazz, which is my which yeah. is my current bass, which is a lovely thing. But there's yeah. a certain amount of return to conservatism because while that's while that um, Ari is a nice bass, and and I have recorded it. I don't know. I mean, not recently, but kind of you know in the last decade, um, I wouldn't play a gig with it. For some reason, I'd feel slightly self-conscious about it if I was out with this thing. If I didn't have, you know, uh, espadrilles and and um, oh, really? Uh, well, that's know, interesting because uh, I mean, I toured I toured for a very long time with my headless status graphite, and nobody went, "Oh, 80s bass." You know, it it's just just a great sounding instrument. If it wasn't twelve mm. pounds, I would still be touring with it. But mm. you know. But I use it in the studio all yeah. the time. I don't think that's a good thing. What I just said about, but it's. It, it, I know it's there. I kind of. I, I fess up that I feel slightly self-conscious about that. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know. Um, uh, My main bass is still from the '80s. I've got a fretless J that I with EMGs of all things. Yeah. And, well, EMGs. There you go. Talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you just can't. Yeah. There's a there's a video that I saw the other day on YouTube, which is uh, I think um, uh, one of the only. Uh, um, of the time performances of uh, of running up that hill that Kate Bush did, and it was some hmm. some a, a big award show or something, and she did it with uh, Dave Gilmore, uh, and uh, I forget his name, the bass player with uh, he was all over that stuff. But anyway, um, great fretless player, and so we have fretless bass, and we have Dave Gilmore playing a, a cricket bat Steinberger in white. Oh, really? <laughs> wearing wow. wearing big baggy, and I'm just thinking, and huh. Kate Bush with all the hairspray, and I'm just thinking this is the most eighties thing I think I've ever seen. So yeah, yeah there we are. Um, so I, I feel like we spent quite a bit of time talking about music and less time talking about production. I don't think there's any problem with that because ultimately, what is the point of uh, a music recording <laughs> studio if not 
to make music. But um, uh, I'm wondering if there's any things that we sort of possibly should refer to at least in the... Uh, we haven't mentioned chorus I, yet, which is a bit... I was about to say that, the chorus <laughs> pedal. But again, again, that makes it, that rears its ugly head, so to speak, in, I don't know, the middle 70s or late 70s. I mean, a good bit before that, but you're right, it becomes ubiquitous in, in well, the that, 80s. Well, that, that Strat sound through the Vox with the chorus pedal was like the 80s chimey yeah. thing especially if you did the sus2 chord <laughs> i've always wondered whether that's uh that's um a natural move away from kind of thick gibsons and stuff i mean gibson yeah, were doing quite badly in the true. 80s weren't they that's true in, in fact in fact if if you were smart you bought Les Pauls in the 80s, but but because they were totally out of favour. But is and, this because and, they didn't you know, sit well with in tracks like rammed no, full of I synthesizers? No, I don't. Well, I shouldn't say no so so categorically, yeah. but I don't think so. I think it was fashion. I think it was a conscious like, oh, that's so seventies or so sixties. Okay. No, we have we have to be modernists now. Yeah. We're all looking for the new thing. So we're going to play um, a guitar so that was designed in fifty six. Well, there was some Strat, but there again, there was a lot of. Schechter and Hamer yeah. and Ibanez and yeah. Jacksons and all this other stuff that were like the trendoid guitars mm. that I think even more than Fenders to some degree. Bass is another story. I mean, you know, everybody had a jazz or a precision anyway. So yeah. even though Steinbergers and other things make their appearance, they don't take over the way I think Les Pauls and Telecasters and those things really went out of favour. But I, I suppose, yeah, there's something in that. I mean, certainly I'm aware that in the 90s, Stratocasters basically disappeared. Um, yeah. Um, um, well, the other thing we could talk about guitar-wise in the '80s is another thing that completely disappeared was the acoustic guitar. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I know so. Ta Taylor actually shut their doors for a period in the '80s because well, everyone couldn't... was playing awful ovations <laughs> with loads of chorus on them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not um, a fan. But I mean, even Martin uh, had uh, their lowest production in sales years in the 80s. I mean, we moved away going from like the heyday of the, the guitar singing singer songwriter in the 70s. You kind of move yeah. into the, you know, electric guitar dominated. Or, or, or the synth or the synth pop. And the synth stuff too. Yeah, that that so, writer was now writing over a map, 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 map bass line instead of a, yeah. instead of an acoustic guitar. But yeah, I don't think acoustic guitars ever completely went away. But you're right, the sort of James Taylor model of of artist took a hiatus. Yeah, you had a couple people try to pop in and, and keep it alive. You had um, Suzanne Vega, Sean Colvin, uh, Tracy Chapman, but it was you know that wasn't the sound of the 80s in any way, really. The Production Expert Podcast is made possible using Source Connect Now from Source Elements, the free way to record high-quality audio over the internet. Need to record an interview or a podcast like this one remotely? With Source Connect Now, you can. Using a Chrome browser, you'll get ISDN-equivalent quality audio without the need to install any additional software. Register for your free account at now.source-elements.com. I, I think I think it's also appropriate to mention compact disc. Thinking uh. about it, just because it was um, gobsmacking to me. I mean, I would I was I wasn't an early adopter of compact disc, but uh, but I lived very close to and saw a lot of some extremely early adopters. So I mean, the first CD player I was I was um, uh, I, I heard was was a you know a proper old top loader, probably Philips machine. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, mm -hmm. and it was. Completely gobsmacking to me to to hear 
silence in just hear a big pause and there to be no no surface noise off a off a vinyl no no tape noise nothing whatsoever i think there's a statistic that in whatever year it was um uh, uh one in every three compact discs sold in in the uk was brothers in arms which uh, <laughs> okay is a sobering thought but uh, yeah. you know, yeah. but it was it was the perfect release for the format. I'll, I'll certainly say that it was. Uh, um, yeah, well, that, that's an interesting. I did it again. That's what <laughs> that that's from from the other side of that. I remember you know making records and they're saying, well, now everything's coming out. Also, it wasn't instead of at that point, but it was also on on CD. That the thing that struck me was the stereo imaging was so much stronger. You got much more separation, a feeling of left-right on a CD than you ever got on a, on a vinyl LP, but it was some de- to some degree at the expense of depth and to me the solidity of it, that the sound quality of CD, early CD especially, um, was not... I don't think as good as what we were getting on analog tape and vinyl. I think um, most people would agree with the first the first generation, yeah. and it's it's taken thirty years for it to shake off that um, yeah <laughs> that initial and, and bad it, reputation. Yeah, and and again, there were people who were gung ho, like I'm running in and now I'm mixing everything to sixteen ten or seven ten or whatever the the early iterations of digital tape were. Um, I was probably one of the last people because as I said, sort of the record plant mentality in mine was, no, I'm holding out for the thing that sounds the best convenience can wait. Mm. Right. I, I think it was, it, was the, it was the character of the top end that really sold me on digital because I, I you know, I mean, I, I was completely sold the first day I heard Compact Disc. I was just like, oh, yeah, no noise and this sparkly, sparkly top end, which really, really impressed me. Ad- admittedly, at the time I was... 13 you know so yeah and the the other thing though is your choice as a as a 13 year old consumer your choice was lp cassette Mm. or cd and given the way most people are capable of playing an lp at home you know you don't have the incredible system given those choices realistically cd was clearly the best choice but from my point of view I had the analog tape, the the, the master, yeah. and and CD did not sound anywhere near as good as that analog tape sounded to me. Right. At that point, we were still at the all consumer formats are disappointing stage. Yeah. Okay. This is possibly a little bit like um, a conversation I was having uh, the other day um, with uh, someone who'd who just installed uh, a, a good Atmos system, done properly, you know, had Dolby in and everything, and. Um, and he was saying about uh, just the quality of, of uh, consumer Atmos because, I mean, certainly when we ran a story a while ago, it's, it's not as difficult or expensive as it used to be to, um, to, to listen to, uh, you know, streamed content in Atmos in your, on, on your studio monitoring, whereas it used to be a bit more complicated and needed hardware and stuff. But what you get... Posts, you know, compression, and you know, all this stuff's got to go down a down, um, squeeze down a, a pipe that's only so so fat. Um, yeah. Is an awful long way away from it. Is listening to the ADM, and in the same way, if you have access to master tapes, and then you're listening to what comes out. I mean, it's a bit like. I mean, remember what the audio compression was like on DVD. 
I mean, it was yeah. an yeah. absolute nightmare. And it's just kind of like, oh, digital audio is no good. Well, that's not the whole of digital audio, is it? That's just kind of like what's left after it's been squeezed down that. Uh, yeah, I suppose one could argue that now the digital file mix that I deliver sounds pretty close to the digital file that the consumer downloads. So there's no disconnect there. But on the other hand, does that mean we've dumbed everything down to that level, or or does it mean we've raised everything up to that level? I'm not. I'm, some days I'm not sure. True. Mm. Oh, I have to say, you you missed out a very important format of the uh, of kind of like the 13 year old in the 80s uh, choices for music being mm. uh, LP. Um, cassette or compact disc, or the most common one, which is a cassette of a cassette of an LP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's yeah, kind of the re- great. yeah, yeah, that's kind of the reality. You know, you multiple passes of of, of of wow and flutter and uh, and a sea of noise. But anyway, but this is what things were like back in the day. Well, and then there, you know, getting back to production stuff though. Let, let's just take a quick turn as we're running out of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the chorus was all over everything, but um, I know for me. Um, th- there was the uh, the whole idea of sequencing kind of changed my approach to recording in the 80s because having first four tracks and then eight, being able to take my little Mac mm. and I had a, a program called Master Tracks Pro, mm-hmm. which was made by Passport Designs, who used to also make a notation program. Uh, they're no longer in business, but uh, I would hook that up with my TR-626 and my Alpha Juno, I forgot if it was a one or a two, it was the smaller keyboard. The two was a big one, I know that one. All right, so it was the Alpha Juno one. And I was able to do however many tracks I wanted to. Yeah, right. Between the drums and, the, and, the, and all the keyboard sounds. And then bounce those to either one or two tracks. It was huge for me in, in my development of, of a production technique to be able to utilize more tracks just without taking up more tracks, if you know what I'm saying. You know, I I got to do it all on the computer. And I remember even uh, being early in college, very late 80s, doing that uh, and saying to myself, you know, it won't be long until we're doing this with audio too. Hmm. We'll be putting audio into the computer. It's true. And and, and Nostradamus. um, Well, yeah, no. (laughs) There's a, there's a, it just seemed obvious. Well, I think we've covered everything that happened in the 1980s in, th- in, in, in depth, don't you? Um, I'd, I'd, we've spent, just spent more time talking about, uh, talking about uh, music and, and instruments than we did about, uh, about production, which I think is interesting in itself and possibly... I was going to say that, that, that's telltale, isn't it? I think it probably is. The, I think the focus was, was, was more there. Well, I mean, I could talk about one other thing that could be controversial, mostly just my opinion. But I mean, the other thing that starts to proliferate like a virus in the in the 80s is SSL consoles. Um, Like a virus. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Largely because of, again, the trend towards everybody has to have automation, automation's very much integrated into that desk and you've got a compressor and an EQ and a gate on every channel and all those things that people want, especially in that era. And so then you have the pressure from A&R people, I think more so in the UK, but both places where it's like, if you don't have an SSL, I'm not sending any work to your studio. Um, well, plus again, you get those sweet, sweet preamps, right? Yeah, exactly. But that, that getting to be my point, I mean, again, Record Plant managed to avoid that plague, but, but a lot of most places did not. And this is something that I avoided 
like the aforementioned plague. I never liked the sound of those desks. I hated the preamps, but I just didn't like them in general. Mm. Um, I'm very much in the minority there, but, I mean, there are people who then just, it opened every door in the world for them. You know, Bob Clearmountain, nothing wrong with him, obviously, right. said, said, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm going to do everything on it. In fact, still says, I don't like moving faders. I mean, to me, moving mm. faders were what made mixing feel like, automated mixing feel like still mixing. I but can, the funny I thing about win, that but, is he has a Neve. Uh, well, not in his mix room. I mean, his big mix room is a massivist. Yeah, so, you're thinking so. of the uh, of the Apogee Studio. The Apogee Studio, yeah. Yeah. He likes recording on it, but he doesn't mix on it. Okay. With the Neve. But, but anyway, I mean, I think there was... Uh, an equivalent, just like Les Pauls are out of fashion, I think, to some degree, especially for mixing, Neves and APIs and Tridents and those things were out of fashion in the 80s. And we're still living with that to some degree today, although, you know, we could go off on another tangent that now you've got people who've never seen a Neve desk saying, I've got to have a clone of a Neve preamp or my home studio isn't a real studio. Can I make a confession? I've always found the Neve Pre's a little mushy. Well, they are a bit. Uh, you could use that word. I mean, you could say that's a good thing about them or a bad thing about them, but I agree. I, it's not my favorite. Again, I would much rather have an API or a Trident A or you know yeah. something. Or, I love the or, APIs. or a Daking, which is a clone of a Trident A. I mean, I, I to me, um, and again, you have to make a distinction. The Class A Neves, like a 1073, sound a lot better to me than the later Class AB. But it's not that I don't like Class AB because an API is that and sounds right. great to me. You know, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's flavors within flavors. But oh, I agree totally. with you. Neve is not... It's not the panacea or not the sent from God thing that I think a lot of hobbyists would pres imagine it to be. Right. And I, and I learned, uh, when I was at Berkeley, we, we learned on an SSL, not surprisingly. Uh, I'm so sorry. Show us on the doll where they hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> but, and somehow that turned me into an API guy, I guess, you know, so I just, I yeah. just prefer the APIs. There's something about the, the, um, just the articulation of everything that goes through them. It, they don't mush together as much. That That's the way I experience it in my head. Yeah. Well, I mean... I'm not technical enough to really know, but I do suspect having a discrete op-amp as opposed to an IC-based channel is a large part of that. Well, that's been a, a fascinating chat through a decade that uh, we, we have extremely different experiences of. It's not all like Back to the Future and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There was, it was more complicated than that, like, like 10 years would be. Uh, but we should move along to the final of the week. RSPE Audio Solutions design, sell, and install professional audio and video equipment. Their team are available by phone, live chat, or email to receive and process orders. They have everything you need to build or upgrade your home studio to ensure you can continue to work from home. If there is anything they can do to help, reach out or shop online at rspeaudio.com. Okay. Um. Uh, oh, Steve, go on. Tell me about your find of the week. So uh, we picked up a new mic at the studio. It's the um, Signal Art U forty seven Premium Reference Edition. Okay. And uh, uh, you know, <laughs> that could be boring to a lot of people. Oh, good, another U forty seven clone. Um, it it's um, 
I first I will say I didn't know that we picked it up and it showed up one day and there it was <laughs> and and uh, the studio owner Keith just like hey look what we got and I was like oh a clone yay <laughs> but mm. we we plugged it in let it warm up and, and uh, wow I'll okay. just say wow it, it's it's um it's not a cheap mic it is yeah, well what, made what is the price point do you know twenty two hundred. Oh, okay. Well, that's not a lot for for that realm. It's not a lot for that yeah. realm. No, it's not the nine thousand. Less than the real one. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, I had seen another pretty decent U forty seven clone, so called clone. They're not really clones, but U forty seven copy ish thing in the three four k range. So in the two k range, is pretty inexpensive for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is. And um, I will just say that, um, uh, despite. Me being like, ooh, clone. Yeah, I, I really did like it. We put it up, we we put it to the test, and uh, it's a very nice mic. And I actually used it on a uh, the very next day. I used it on a vocal session. I'm going to use it on a vocal session later today. It's uh, and is it um, cardioid and omni or cardioid and figure eight? Cardi cardioid omni figure eight. Oh, so all three. three. So it's a, so it's almost like again? a 40, 48. It's U forty seven eight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So again, not a clone. Not a clone. No, and also the um, if you read on their website, they talk all about why they make some choices that they make for um, sonic reasons. They don't have the switch on the body of the mic. The switch is on the power supply. Right. Well, Neumann did that on the forty nine and some other places too. But that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what tube they use? Uh, I could look it up. I don't remember. Okay, I was just curious. Uh, it's it's not a it's not a well it's VF. not a VF fourteen obviously. No, but no. Yeah, um, yeah, that'd probably be. That'd probably and it be came with a, with own. extra set of <laughs> yeah. tubes, which I thought was oh, a, wow. a nice touch, so that uh, we don't have to worry. <laughs> yeah, I hope it's a touch and not a warning. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. It's not like buying yeah. a car and the guy gives you a spare gearbox just in case. Yeah, just yeah. in case. Just in case. Yeah. So, yeah. so well, that so sounds far, lovely, though, Steve. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a week old. Uh, it's been getting use, and uh, it's it's quite a nice mic. It's it certainly has um, there. There's this this bigness to it. It it, it has mm -hmm. a, a real kind of feel that's uh, unlike. Uh, my other favorite, which is the, as we talked about in that other article, the Rhodes, which is more C12-ish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so it's it's a great little mic. Um, if, you're, if you're looking at 47 clones, it's, wor it's worth taking a peek at. All right. Awesome. Because um, you've got, haven't you got a 47 FET at your place? Did I yes. see that in some pictures? The, the Bach audio one, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, it's not, it's not, not yeah. okay. Excellent, excellent. Um, William, what's yours? Mine is only uh, tangentially studio-related. It's the Lutron Caseta, I believe they say it, smart uh, AC switches. Um, and I've put these in a couple of places in my house and in my studio, and uh, they just replace your wall switches. Uh, and I'm using them just for lighting, but you could use them, I suppose, for anything, fans or whatever else. Um, you could get them with dimmer or without dimmers. Um, and being smart switches, you can control them uh, over the internet via their app or through Apple's HomeKit or uh, whatever Alexa apps you have. So I can, for example, set routines that at 9.30 it turns on my bedroom light, and if I haven't turned it off, it will turn it off two hours later. Uh, or I could set it to a particular 
dim level. And if, if I'm sitting here in my studio and I want to dim the lights, I can say, hey, Siri, I'm happy my phone didn't go off there, but I can I can address <laughs> she who must not be named. Loads of people all over the world. <laughs> yeah, to just happened yeah, in their cars, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I can use Siri or one can use Alexa or whatever you have mm. and say set the lights to 40% in the studio mm. and it'll dim the lights to that setting. It's very, very convenient and you get spoiled by the sort of smart home aspects of it. And, you know, if you're at all... If you're able to change a light switch, if you're electrically aware enough to not kill yourself, uh, it's a relatively easy install and they just work great. I think they're a kind of a cool thing. That sounds Did great. Did you do the install yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, I, I, I bought some bulbs that I can control from an app. Um, yes, yeah, smart bulbs yeah, are yeah. very much along the same line. Yeah. Now, are you at all concerned with um, that getting hacked? Um, no. Because what's the worst that they're going to do? They're going to change the lighting in my studio. It's like it doesn't give it access to my network. Right. It has its own. It has a hub that sits on the network. Well, you see, I'm it, the guy yeah. that would think that was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be like, oh look, Turn, I'm changing. Yeah, it. Oh, turning my lights Didn't on. Didn't somebody off. flash yeah. Putin's Remotely. office office lights uh, recently as <laughs> some some kind of, <laughs> sort of cyber attack type thing? And yeah, anyway, it's. Uh, um, that's cool. It, it is very cool. Um, like that, like that very much. Mine, uh, it's, I'm going to see how many podcasts in a row I can go for, uh, hooking in the, um, the, uh, my, my Nord and, and, and playing in a band because it's another yeah. part of that. But, um, yeah, I bought myself a pair of, uh, Personas Air 10s, which are, uh, sort of plastic PA boxes. Um, I've always had a, I've always had a bit of a thing about plastic PA boxes. You kind of JBL, Eons, Mackie, SRM, whatever they are. Yep. They always sound like various versions of somebody, somebody thumping a, a washing up bowl. Um, they just, <laughs> they, they just, you know what I mean? They're just plastic, tubby, nasty compared to a, a proper birch ply cabinet. They, they just sound dreadful. These, do sound plastic, but they sound pretty good actually. I mean, you can mm -hmm. you can hear it. I'm not going to kind of pretend because I've bought them that they don't sound like what they are. But of the plastic cabinet PA speakers I've heard, these are up there. These are good, and um, and they've got some DSP built in, some different placement options. They're very light because they're plastic. They're not very expensive because they're plastic as well. Um, yeah. All in all, being a huge PA snob. Um, my background in live sound, and basically, <laughs> if it's not acoustics or DMB, then I just ugh, it's just tat. Um, yeah, I'm I'm okay with this, and I bought a pair of them basically as as a as a keyboard combo, effectively, just because okay. I needed I needed something else. I had I had something I was using, and it, it went pop, and it was class D, so basically, it's going in the bin. There's no no point even looking, and um, I needed something new, and I thought actually, pianos sound a bit funky when you uh, when you uh, when you do them in mono uh, they always do uh, and if you're doing a lot of organs like i am uh, a mono leslie it, it just forget it, it just sounds rubbish <laughs> you need stereo for leslie's so that's what i'm doing I've, I've taken it to one practice and i've done one gig with it and i'm really really happy actually i think it's lovely oh nice yeah, yeah the pre Presona stuff in general punches way above its weight, as the saying goes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am happy, and it's like I'm not pretending they're not something they are. They're plastic PA boxes. What's but, the power? Uh, oh, plenty. Um, I can't even remember actually. <laughs> but it was more about. I mean, they do. Uh, I think they. Uh, 
short-term peak SPL is 121, I think. Oh, yeah. You, so, you yeah, it's it. fine. And, and they roll yeah. off at 70 hertz, which is fine. I'm not going to – they're never going to have uh, a kick drum or a bass guitar anywhere near them. So, you right. know, yeah. and, uh, and a bit of roll off there from the keys is, is absolutely fine. So, no, yeah, I'm, you I'm probably have to do that anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah got to get out of the way of the bass player. And my top tip – is uh, um, because you can buy kind of like padded or nylon sort of covers that you drop over boxes like that for protecting them. And don't do that. Don't throw the boxes away. And then what you do is you cut them, you fold them round, you make uh, a, a, sli- a slide-on cover out of cardboard, and then you just do mm. all the edges with gaffer tape. And uh, I did that with, uh, with a PA system, I don't know, 10 years ago, um, rather than buy a set of covers. And they lasted... They lasted the sort of you know seven eight years I was around that PA and that was going out pretty regularly and you know you get a hole bashed in the cover you just stick a bit of tape over it you can keep going indefinitely until you've got more gaffer than you have cardboard yeah. but yeah plus plus anything that covered in gaffer tape has a lot of punk rock cred well yeah there is that I suppose I mean I'm sure there's got to be <laughs> got to be limits to that but yeah absolutely yeah. I think that's all we've got time for but uh, thank you to to my guests Steve and William uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Production Expert Podcast. 